Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful um, for today, Lord, and we are thankful that um, we have the opportunity to be here, Lord, and uh, discuss your your providence. And uh, and Lord, I just pray that uh, you would help me to explain uh, in a way that makes sense. Lord, help our hearts to be ready to listen. Um, send your Spirit upon us to help us to understand. Uh, be with the other teachers. Uh, in the other classes, Lord, be with the children in their Sunday school classes, Lord, and we pray for their hearts even now, um, that you would give them a heart of flesh, Lord, that they would grow up uh, to worship you and to love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so good morning. Uh, so just kind of a layout here. So you, we've made it. We're through part one. We're into part two. Congratulations. Um, so that's kind of the layout there. Um, the wrong one is, no, that's right. All right. There we go. So that's where we're at for today. This kind of layout through, uh, December and into the, uh, the seminar, the, the winter seminar that we do. Um, so that'll take us there. So today, uh, I'm going to touch just a little bit on, uh, to kind of wrap up creation and then we'll get into kind of defining the providence of God, uh, and then, Pastor Mike will be back next week, and he'll kind of wrap that one up. So uh, so just a quick review uh, from last week for uh, anyone who wasn't here or uh, to refresh our memories. So we kind of looked at some biblical uh, truths about creation. So I'll just run through those real quick. So we saw that creation, it was rapid, and it was out of nothing, right? God didn't coexist at the beginning with some matter or anything like that. Um, he, created, uh, he created all things, and he created them mature. Right. So the plants were fully grown. The trees were fully grown. Blessings were given to man and beast to be fruitful and multiply. Right. So they were ready to to reproduce. Um, We saw that creation was a free act. God wasn't coerced or necessitated into creating anything. Um, He did it by his word. It was a triune act. Every member of the Trinity had a part to play. Um, In Genesis 131, we saw that creation was very good. And in Psalm 19.1, we see that God created everything to show his glory, right? Um, We looked at a few ways in which people interpret the Genesis account. I I won't get into those, but the the literary framework view, uh, the day-age view, and and then just a literal six-day creation. Um, So I think you can can get it online or do some research. I mean, it is interesting uh, stuff to research and and to to look at. so today, uh, we kind of laid out that God created the universe. So today, we just kind of want to see what, uh, what is his role in that? What does he, what does he do on a, on a day-to-day basis, right? How does he relate to his creation, right? So we'll look at a couple s- kind of secular beliefs here, uh, and then we'll get into um, kind of the doctrine of providence there. So uh, the first one is deism, right? And deism says that God created but denies God's present involvement, right? So this view, it's, it's really probably more prevalent than we think. Um, we all will turn on the news or we'll check the weather, right? And, and inevitably, you're going to hear something about, well, let's see what Mother Nature has in store for us, right? I mean, it's kind of the, the common thing, right? Or I play, I play fantasy football, and uh, yes, thank you. And a lot of times, uh, you know, we talk about the fantasy gods that are... Um, 
not shining down on us or hopefully this week shining down on me, right? Especially since I'm playing my son. Um, but, you know, the idea isn't actually that there's, you know, a, a, like, you know, gods f- over fantasy football that are torpedo- torpedoing my team, right? It's, you know, it's just that these are, these are arbitrary events in, in time that pique no interest of a God that created the universe, right? He has, there's too much going on. These minor things are not things that he's involved in, right? So we're all familiar with the classic example uh, where uh, God is compared to a, a watchmaker, right? So he kind of winds up this clock, sets it down, and just lets it go, right? So that's, that's the deistic view of, of God's relationship uh, to his creation, right? And then, you know, kind of the contrast to that would be, you know, more of a pantheistic view, right? And it, it kind of says that God is manifested in every part of creation, right? So we're all of one substance. So uh, this is the ultimate imminence, right? Creation, uh, it's worshipped in that it gives a sense of the divine, right? So God's so intertwined with his creation that um, if we want to experience divine, we can, we basically just need to look within ourselves, right? Or, or we go out into nature, um, you know, nothing is separate or individual. We're all of, you know, of one substance. And, and as Paul said, right, we can begin to worship the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Right. Um, and then, you know, kind of opposed to both of those would be naturalism. Right. And natural naturalism says that there is no God. Right. And the universe is created through random chance. Right. So the world and all we know and see, it's just kind of a coalescing of, of matter and atoms upward into life. Right. And um, just in case you were in need of a pick me up, I gave you this quote from Bertrand Russell um, and I'll read it um, because it makes me feel good inside. Uh, Man, his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collections of atoms. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So we should all feel warm and fuzzy right there, right? It, it adds value to everything uh, that I know is important and true, right? It's, they're all just an accidental collection of atoms, right? And so I just, I guess it's better to be lucky than good at that case. So, um, but no, it's, you know, so we, we, we understand that, that the Bible says that God created the universe, that God has a, a dealing with the universe. So then the question is, how does God relate to his universe, right? How does he relate to his creation? So, um, Ultimately, the Bible will tell us that creation is distinct from God, right? So this is something we've already kind of looked at, but we understand that God is transcendent, right? Meaning he's separate or above his creation. Um, <clears throat> in First Chronicles twenty nine eleven, it's a nice picture. Um, I'll go ahead and read that right here. It says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above all. Right? And this idea, it, it, we see it over and over in Scripture, right? 
Paul tells us, who, is, who, has, uh, who has known the mind of God or who has become his counselor? Uh, and Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, right? And on and on it goes, right? God is, God is in every way superior to his creation. But that doesn't mean that he's not involved in his creation. So uh, we also know that um, God is very involved in his creation uh, because it's continually dependent upon him, right? And so this would be what we'd call God's imminence, right? Or his remaining in, right? So if you look at Job 38, and uh, it's really a, a neat section of scripture uh, at the end of chapter 38 and kind of on through uh, chapter 39, God's asking a, a series of rhetorical questions to Job and it's showing his, his greatness, right? Um, but in verse 41 of chapter 38, he, he goes through, he goes through this, this, uh, this thing here. He says, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry out to God for help and wander about for lack of food. You guys, you guys catch that? The ravens cry out to God for help. Right? So he's telling Job, who, who does that? Who feeds them when the raven cries out to me? Right? And then he goes on in, in chapter 39 at the beginning and he talks about who, who sees when the, the calves give birth to the does and who knows when the mountain goats give birth and who knows who numbers their months. Right? And there's just this uh, totally amazing portion where he is intimately involved with everything that you would think about in the universe from the rotation and orbits of planets to sustaining all the laws of nature that he's put in place. And he's interested in feeding ravens and, and numbering the months of, of mountain goats. I mean, he's very intimately involved, right? Um, we see it in the New Testament, right? Our Lord tells us that God is so, conturn, so concerned with the lilies of the field that are here today and tomorrow become tender, right? And how not even a single sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the Father's knowledge. And I, so this, this thought is kind of what frames... Our discussion, and so um, uh, we're going to talk about providence, and, and uh, so we can define it. Oh, did it keep going on? It did. There we go. All right, so we'll define providence this way, right? Um, the intimate involvement of God in every aspect of His creation. The intimate involvement of God in every aspect of His creation, or we can. We could, uh, we could quote the Heidelberg Confession. It says it this way. All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Right? So the question then, and if you guys were able to read the article um, from uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, it was pretty good uh, as far as helping to define what providence is. But that's, so we, we asked the question, what does providence mean? Um, so we go back to, to Scripture, and in Genesis 22, we kind of see this, providence come up here and um, Abraham and Isaac they're heading up the mountain and uh, Abraham is preparing to sacrifice Isaac and Isaac is you know he's he's not a you know he doesn't know what's happening but he's he's aware of his surroundings right and he sees that they have everything they need for a sacrifice except he says to Abraham hey where's the lamb right and and Abraham responds and he says son God will provide a lamb for himself and right, so therein is the doctrine of providence, right? God will provide, right? And so the word itself, it literally means to see forward, right? Pro meaning forward and vide meaning see. But that's not really what, what we would get when we read that, right? So um, linguistically, pro can also mean on behalf of. 
So what you have is literally to see on behalf of. And so we, we kind of talk that way, right? If someone asks me for something, whether I'm at work or I'm at home, I might say, well, I'll see to that, right? And so we kind of get that same idea when we, when we say, say something that way, well, I'll see to that, right? And what do we mean? We mean I'll, I'll take care of it, or I, I got that, right? And so every time that uh, you see that word provide in Genesis 22, right, it's, it's literally to see. It's the Hebrew word to see. And, and so literally what Abraham is saying is that God will see for himself a lamb, right? So then the question is, why is God seeing connected to his providing? Well, I think the deepest answer is that God never sees without acting, right? He's not a passive participant in creation, right? He's, he's intimately involved. And I like the way John Piper says it. He said, wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs, if he inspects, he affects. So when it comes to provision of the universe, you know, we can say that God, God will see to that, right? So then the question becomes, how does he see to that? So we'll, we'll take a look at a few of those things uh, at this point, right? So the first one here, we, there's a couple kind of, I don't know if you want to call them buckets or categories or whatever that we can kind of look at on, on how God sees to the universe but the first one here is preservation, right? So um, God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. So if you look at Hebrews 1.3, it says, speaking of Christ, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So to kind of paint the picture a little bit, upholds, it's a, a Greek word, it's pharaoh, it's a common Greek word. Right. Paul uses it in Second Timothy four thirteen. He's telling Timothy to bring his cloak and to bring his uh, bring the parchment and, and, and some other things. Right. That, and that's what he's saying. The same same word there, Pharaoh. Um, and we also see it in Luke five eighteen. It's the story. There's a few guys and they're bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Right. And they carry him there and they can't get in the house. So then they carry him to the top of the house and they kind of dig a hole through the roof. They lower him down in there. Right. And that word carry is the same the same word that's used in Hebrews, right? And so the word has a sense of active, purposeful control over the thing that's being carried, right? From one place to another. So God is actively, purposefully upholding or carrying along the universe, right? His creation, right? So this idea also extends to say that if God stopped doing that, the universe would go out of existence. And we kind of see that in Job. It says in Job 34, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish. All flesh would perish together, excuse me, and man would return to dust. So it's pretty, pretty impressive carrying. Right. And then one thing we want to caution uh, is that his creation is not new at all times. Right. So when we say he's <clears throat> excuse me, when we say that he's upholding the universe, it's not that he's creating new atoms or molecules uh, at all times, right? He's, he's maintaining it, right? So the paper that you have your, your outline on is going to continue to remain paper because that's how he upholds that, right? Unless it comes in contact with another source, say fire, at which point it becomes, you know, ash. But you know, we read in Colossians 1.17 that, you know, 
Uh, in him, all things hold together, right? So he, he upholds it and he maintains it in a, in a reliable and consistent uh, pattern, right? And that, that's something that also we can, we can see in another point here is that God preserves in such a way that allows for reliable, consistent activity. So over the last few months, I've been getting, I get these notifications on my phone and we have a little telescope um, you know, that Kara's dad gave us. And so we like to take it out and, and mess around with it. And, uh, so I'll get these notes. It tells me when a, a planet is, they call it conjunction or opposition. And basically what it means is it's a good time to see it, right? So if you pull out a telescope, there's a chance that we've pulled it out and seen Saturn and you can kind of see the rings around it. And, you know, so it just shows you when it's the best, but the, you know, it's, what's interesting about that is that they're able to tell us that, right? And, and the reason that they're able to tell us that is because it's, there's a reliable, consistent pattern in the rotation and orbit of the, of the heavenly bodies, right? And we saw that back last week in Genesis. When God created the stars, he said that they would be for signs and they would be for seasons, meaning they're going to be consistently there at certain times of the year, right? So when you look up there and you see constellations or other constellations, you know, because there's consistent, reliable activity what time of the year it is, right? So we can rely on that. And that, that same thing is true for technology, right? So that allows us to have technology. How many people drove a car to get here today, right? So you put gas in your car, you turn the key and you light fire and you put it on gas to make your car go. It makes no sense, right? But ultimately God allows things, he upholds things in a reliable, consistent manner so that we can take that and we can harness it and use it for technology, right? Because we understand how it's going to act, right? And it's, I mean, there's so much going on, right? That if, I mean, you, it's hard to even get over, right? We're all sitting in this room and we're harnessing electricity to turn the lights on, right? We harness flame and turn it into heat so that we can have warmth in the winter and, you know, air conditioning in the summer, you know? And, and so all these things have reliable, consistent activity so that we can utilize them, right? These are all providences of God that he's given us. Um, so, uh, but that doesn't mean, so that one other point here, right? This is not to say that God can't go outside of these, these things, right? We understand that God's not bound by anything. Um, and just to kind of show that if you want to look, uh, some point at second Kings chapter six, um, I won't, I won't read it. Uh, but it is an interesting, uh, passage where, uh, some guys, they're, they're chopping wood and the axe head falls off into the river and Elisha's there and, um, you know, they're telling him about it. And so he throws a stick in there and the axe head floats to the surface of the water, right? So if anyone is, I mean, iron doesn't float, right? So, I mean, God can go outside of his normal, uh, the laws that he has put in place for reliable, consistent activity, right? He's not bound by anything. Um, so the last part that we, uh, the last kind of bucket or category of God's providence that we can uh, take a look at here is, is this, this idea of concurrence. And it's kind of, we'll talk about it for a little bit. Um, it's kind of an, it, I don't know, I didn't like the way I wrote that, so I apologize. But God's operation with all created things, causing them through their distinct properties to act as they do. So, um, the doctrine of concurrence or, you know, this, this category of concurrence kind of affirms that God works through his creation to bring about his purpose, right? So it's, it, 
might be difficult for us to understand or recognize because, you know, when we look at the world around us, we often see um, natural processes that God uses, right? And we'll look at a couple things, but um, the initial thought is that if I can't see, I don't physically see God's hand at work, then I'm seeing a secondary cause and that, or a natural cause, and so God isn't the cause, right? Because we just, our minds don't see that, right? But there's something we have to understand is that God 100% causes an event, and the created thing 100% causes the event, right? So God is the initial cause, right? He's the first cause, right? And he uses secondary causes that are consistent with their nature, and we'll look at we'll look at some examples, right? But um, he uses those. It's it's consistent with their nature and their distinct properties. And these secondary causes are often the causes that can be observed, right? These are the things that we see, right? So we'll look at a few of those things uh, that he does, right? So the first um, the first kind of uh, point here is that God uses natural occurrences to direct and guide inanimate creation or events. Right. So inanimate things, they include weather, animals or what we might call, you know, luck or random chance. Right. And so if you look at the weather, the Bible over and over scripture over and over talks about how God causes the weather. Right. In Job 37, we see that by the breath of God, ice is given. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. Right. Or Psalm 135 says he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. And who makes lightning for the rain and and brings forth wind from his storehouses. And we see the same same, uh, theme from our Lord in the New Testament when he says that uh, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Right? Matthew 5. So these passages undoubtedly show that God is the first cause of weather. But we can also duplicate these same things in laboratories and we have the hydrologic cycle, right? So water comes down, evaporates, it condenses in the sky, you get clouds, they, right, rain and so on and so forth, right? And there's a cycle or wind, right? It's high pressure, low pressure. It's not, it's not difficult, right? So we see these secondary causes that are 100% causing the weather. But we understand that God is the first cause, right? So I don't know if that makes sense. It's it's hard to understand, at least for me it was, right? But um, just because we don't, under, we don't see that God is, is ultimately causing it, we don't see God in the sky bringing rain, doesn't mean that he isn't the one who's orchestrating the hydrologic cycle so that we have rain on our land, right? Um, you look at animals, right? Here's another, we'll, we'll use this as another example, right? So, Over and over, the Bible tells us that God is the first cause of feeding the animals, right? He takes care of his animals. So we'll look at a few here. In Psalm 104, it says, speaking of animals, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed, right? We saw in, in Job 38, right? Who provides for the raven its prey when the young ones cry out to God for help, right? In, in uh, the New Testament, Christ tells us that look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, right? So the first cause is God. He feeds the animals. The second cause is that, you know what? 
If you're a lion, you go out and you hunt, right? If you're a bird, you, f- you leave your nest and you go, you catch worms, you get seed, whatever it is that you eat, right? And that's what you do. That's the secondary cause. But you're 100% doing what it is that God has given you to do, your instincts, your nature, what's consistent with your nature, right? And so God is causing, he's feeding, but he's using the, the distinct nature of that animal to do that, right? Um, you know, you also see that, you know, he's involved in their life, right? Not a sparrow, two, two sparrows that are sold for a penny, but not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, right? So, um, I mean, it's, there's intimate knowledge there, right? And intimate dealings with them. Then we also have chance events, right? So, I mean, it's random, it's luck, right? It's called that for a reason. Uh, but Proverbs 16 tells us the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the lot, it's, you know, like modern day dice or flipping a coin, right? Um, it, it, it was used to settle disputes or make decisions. Um, I mean, you, you, you think about it today, right? So in a football game, the captains come out, the visiting team calls it in the air, right? Heads or tails, a 50-50 chance, right? Seems mundane and, and totally arbitrary to anything that God would be concerned about, but you know, the lot is cast into the lap, but that's every decision is from the Lord, right? Um, you see it in Acts chapter 1. Uh, the disciples are going to choose a replacement for Judas. Uh, and they prayed, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, right? So they, they used it to fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament and, and choose uh the individual that would take the place of Judas, right? Um, so we see that God, you know, he's, he's involved in the minutest details of the world, right? But what about with us, right? So uh, kind of the next point here is that God, uh, he directs every aspect of our lives according to his purposes and plans. Um, so the depth to which God is involved in our daily lives is, is it's an absolutely... Uh, head-spinning and amazing thought. Um, you know, we see our dependence on him for food, right? In Philippians 2, Paul says, My God will supply every need, uh, every need of yours, right? In the Lord's Prayer, we're told, or we ask, Give us this day our daily bread, right? Um, and God, God can use totally normal means to do this. Right. But we understand the first cause is from the Lord. Right. And, and we've experienced this and I'm sure we all have. Right. You know, uh, about a year ago, um, I was in between jobs and um, waiting for a background check to clear. And so Kara and I were, you know, I didn't have a paycheck, you know, and we were at the grocery store and the shillings came in and uh, we were talking about it. And we, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We were scraping by and it, it was it is what it is, you know, and uh, but we were talking about it and, and, and nothing was out of the ordinary, but then they came back and they gave us a gift card, you know, to, to shop with, uh, which was a total blessing, right? And that came from the Lord, right? I mean, he put it into their heart to do that. And uh, the next week at church, you know, members from the Agape team came up and they gave us some cash, right? Or gave us a check so that we could have uh, some funds to get through until my job started, right? And, and never, we didn't ask, we didn't, but the Lord knew Right. And so he was the first cause in moving the hearts of those individuals to make that happen. Right. I mean, it's so when you look at things like that that happen in your life, right, you can really see the hand of God at work, the providence of God at work. Right. And 
Um, but it's not only our food, right? He's planned our days. Uh, you look at Psalm 139, it says, In your book were written every one of them, his days, right? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So long before we even had our first day, God has written all of our days, right? So it's planned out already, right? And uh, in Job 14, it says, Man's days are determined, and the number of his months are with you, and you have appointed his bounds that he cannot pass, right? And we see, all that, we see this in the lives of Paul and a lot of other of the prophets, you know, Jeremiah, they are said to be set apart or consecrated before their birth, right? Paul was, he was a murderer of the church, right? But, but it says that he was set apart before, before his birth, right? Before he was born. Um, you know, in Proverbs 20, it says a man's steps are ordered by the Lord, right? You could say that our very DNA is in the hands of the Lord, right? It's under his control, Right. And this also extends to our successes and our failures. So if you look at Psalm 75, it says that, uh, we, you know, God's warning against having a proud or boastful heart. And he says, do not boast, do not lift up your horn for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Right. And the, the concept also includes our talents and our gifts. Right. So we see Paul. Uh, he says this in first uh, first Corinthians four. He says, why do you boast? Uh, I started that wrong. I apologize. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right. So we don't even have gifts or talents that the Lord didn't providentially give to us. Right. Um. Another aspect that we see um, is our authority, right? Our government. Um, and Paul says in Romans 13 that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So not only does God institute the rulers and authorities of our land, but he also has the ability to guide them and direct the decisions of these authorities, right? Um, it says in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Right. Or if you look at the return of the exiles in Ezra chapter uh, or in Ezra in chapter one, it says um, that God stirred up the, the spirit of Cyrus, the king. Right. Or again, in, in Ezra six, that God turned the heart of the king so that he aided them in the work of the house of of God, the God of Israel. You know, and the same thing is true today, right? So um, it doesn't mean that because God is the one who directs and guides and uh, institutes the government that we don't participate, right? We, we go and we're involved in the process. We vote. We do all those things, right? But in the end, what we have to understand is that um, ultimately God will institute, as Paul tells us, right, his chosen individuals, Right. And he will guide them and he will direct them for whatever purpose, uh, whatever purpose it is that he sees fit to do. Um, so what does all this mean for application? Um, so. Scripture, scripture is very clear, right? God controls 
God controls and sustains all things according to his word, right? And all things means all things, right? So whether it's stars or planets or nations um, or sparrows or even the hairs on our head, right? Um, he's, what's that? Or lack of, Brian. Some more than others, right? If you have less hair, you're making it easier, right, to count the numbers of hair on your head. That's what it is. Um, but, you know, this, as I thought about it this week, this this idea of providence is it's, um, it's an impenetrable abyss. Uh, it's a very it's a very scary thing, right? Um, God, His hands control all things, right? And it's very scary if you separate the fact that the hands that control all things are good hands, right? If you separate those two things, it's the doctrine of providence is a scary, scary thing because only. The only reason that we can have faith and rejoice in that is because the hands that guide and direct all things are good hands, right? And this is why Christ relays this in such gentle terms, right? When he's talking to his disciples, you know, he's, he talks about see how, see how God clothes the grass of the field, right? Or how he feeds the birds of the air or knows when a sparrow falls, right? These are gentle terms that he's using to describe God's providence, you know? But what about our decisions, right? Do we even make decisions? Do our decisions matter? Is there inter- eternal relevance to that? I mean, if God is the one that's orchestrating and, and guiding all things, I mean, you know, how, how are we accountable for decisions? I mean, right? And, and I won't get too much into it because Pastor Mike, I'll leave the hard stuff for Pastor Mike. He'll be back next week. Sean and I were talking about this morning, right? He gets the controversial stuff. But um, I do want to just kind of touch on it. Um, and then he can uh, he can hit it out of the park from there. Uh, but I'll tee it up. Um, we think back to Joseph, right? And we'll look at jo- Joseph 45, or uh, Genesis. Thinking back to the story of Joseph in Genesis Genesis 45. Um, it's kind of you know as Pastor Milton's been going through Genesis, we you know we see that Joseph was kind of this. He was a favored child, right? And uh, you know, so one day he comes down to the breakfast table and he's telling his brothers, hey, man, I've had this dream and it's, man, let me tell you all about it, how you're going to be bowing down to me, right? And it's not, you know, the best conversation to have at a breakfast table, especially, you know, as he's wearing this coat that his father gave him and the brother, other brothers don't have this, right? And so there's this animosity that builds and builds and builds, right? And his brothers, you know, they despise him, right? And they want to kill him. And so what they, they end up doing uh, is, is, you know, selling him away into slavery. And uh, um, in Genesis 45, you know, Joseph reveals himself to them and there's a lot of crying. Um, and he says something very interesting in verse 5. He says, um, And now do not be distressed. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. It's very interesting, right? So when Joseph is telling his brothers, don't be angry at yourselves that you sold me. You did it. You were angry. You, you despised me. You wanted evil against me. And so you sold me. But it was God who sent me before you to preserve life, right? And that's kind of just the paradox that we see, right? 
Um, and Joseph is the only one that can say this, right? His brothers can't say this, right? Because his brothers, they can't look at it and go, well, Joseph, you know, you can't say that we meant evil, right? Because look what God did. And we knew that we were just pawns in the act of God's providence. So our sin isn't really sin. We were just doing what, no, they, they don't get to say that, right? It's Joseph who says this, right? He's the one who's being sinned against, right? And he's saying it, right? Uh, there's a quote here from George Lawson. He says, God not only permits sin, but he makes use of it. No sinner can do any evil that God has not intended to use for the advancement of his own glory. Right. Um, and like I said, Pastor Michael get into this more next week. But, you know, the only thing we can hang our hat on is the fact that God is able to do this because he is God. Right. Um, he's able to do what he chooses because he's God. He's existed from eternity past. He's created all things. Right. He cannot be a cosmic principle or a construct within us, right? This is, this, he has to be over and above everything, right? And that's the only way to accept this, right? Because um, as I said, it can be an impenetrable abyss, right? And, um, you know, as I thought about this, um, almost to the day here, we got six more days. Karen and I were pregnant with our third child. And, uh, you know, we'd done this before and, um, about 21 weeks along, something didn't feel right. And he said, well, this isn't our first rodeo, right? We've done this. We're, we're okay. And so we said, let's go to the doctor. We'll get it checked out. And, um, you know, you start to get worried after multiple doctors come in, right? And, um, they couldn't, there was a problem. There is a problem, right? And they couldn't find a heartbeat. And so um, on November 9th, um, at 21 weeks, Levi was born. It was perfect. You know, we spent time with him. Absolutely perfect. And, uh, but over and over we asked, you know, why? This just doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't understand. And uh, a year later, not even actually, a year later, he blessed us with him two of the most beautiful girls, right? We have Brooklyn and Caitlin, twins, right? And so looking back, you know, yeah, he pulled Levi out of this world long before he ever had the chance to see any of the ugliness in it, right? And he's at home with his Lord and we'll be there, right? But then he, he gave us two little girls to love and two souls that Karen and I have the responsibility of leading to Christ, right? And so looking back, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't change it for anything, right? But it's, the providence of God is a, it's, it's an impenetrable abyss, right? It's, it's something that we need to come to on our knees, right? It needs to be held softly in our hands and trusted decisively in our death and our disappointments, in our struggles and variations of life. In this doctrine, there is comfort in trouble, there is security in chaos, and there is the basis for humility in success. Uh, it was, as I was studying, I'd heard it said that the doctrine of providence is a soft pillow for us to land on. And while the providence of God may feel like an impenetrable abyss to me, we know that it's not. Um, an impenetrable abyss to God. So, with that said, 
I got done five minutes early. So, if there are any questions, I can try to answer those now. Uh, if not, then we'll be done a few minutes early. But does anybody have any questions or anything? Brian. You're sorry, what? You have a big mouth. <laughs> no questions. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I said that providence is a doctrine that needs to be come to on our knees. It needs to be held softly in our hands and trusted decisively in our death and disappointments, in our struggles and variations of life. In this doctrine, there is comfort in trouble, security in chaos. There is the basis for humility in success. It's been said that the doctrine of providence is a soft pillow for us to land on. All right. Last chance. All right. Why don't we pray and then uh, we'll be done a few minutes early. Heavenly Father, we are, um, well, we stand in awe of just how you care and how you relate to us, Lord. And we know that you're transcendent. You are above all. And yet, th- your word tells us that you, you know the numbers of hairs on our head. And Lord, you, you care deeply about things that happen in our lives, Lord, and you you're, you're causing them to bring about good for us. And, and um, Lord, we just pray for increased faith to be able to see that in, in times of trouble and distress. And Lord, I just, uh, I just pray that as, uh, as we go from here, Lord, we would just really view things through this lens, Lord, that um, this doctrine is, is really something to see every aspect of our lives through. There is nothing that you're not involved in. But we love you, and uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.